Are you in the right headspace to receive information that could possibly hurt you? You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club that needs to get off Twitter. Look what he asked from me, Hermione. Risk your life, Harry. And again, and again. And don't expect me to explain everything. Just trust me blindly. Trust that I know what I'm doing. Trust me even though I don't trust you. Never the whole truth. Never. He loved you. I know he loved you. I don't know who he loved, Hermione. But it was never me. This isn't love, the mess he's left me in. He shared a damn sight more of what he was really thinking with Gellert Grindelwald than he ever shared with me. I'm Heather Price Wright. And I'm Alex Nallenberg. Happy New Year! Here we are. We have returned after taking a much-needed break from the vagaries of J.K. Rowling's opinions and also just from basically doing anything. We cleaned the apartment. We did. We nose to tail cleaned the apartment. And, and we owned we, so many tote bags. We found a lot of tote bags. Like and 100 tote bags. It wasn't, it was nowhere near 100. Okay, it was in double digits to- of tote bags. maybe 15. Oh no, it was much higher than that. I don't think that's true. I'm anyway. Gonna, I'm going to lay them all out and take a photo for the Instagram. No, I'm 100% not going to do that. Don't do that. Also. That's, we'd be such boring content. Anyway, go ahead. Basically, Sorry. I don't know, like. All millennials own a fuck ton of tote bags. That's just a thing our generation does, I think. Whatever. So we also watched a bunch of Schitt's Creek and The (laughs) Muppets. And that was about it. So here we are. We have decided that the chapters in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, which we are still reading, have gotten super dense. And there's a lot of plot happening. So we are actually going to go chapter by chapter, probably, for the duration of this book. Which, you know... Good for all of us because it extends the podcast by a great deal, actually. So we will be reading this book for the rest of time. Yeah. But we need a full episode for every one of these chapters because so much is happening. So you'll still have the Quibbler podcast to kick around a little bit longer. Probably until like 2023. That's not true. (laughs) How much of Deathly Hallows is left? More than half. Yeah, I guess you're right. All right. And we've already been reading it for months. So it's going to be a while. So this week we are reading the chapter called The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore, which given the current environment in which we find our dear creator, not of Earth, not God, just J.K. Rowling. Of a world. Yes, of this particular of world. The Harry Potter universe? The, the Wizarding World. That's what they call That's the trademark. The Ugh. Wizarding World. TM. Or is it Restricted. I don't know my copyright law. Yeah, we're reading The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore, otherwise known as All Your Faves Are Cancelled, otherwise known as Extremely Timely. This week we will curse and spoil Harry Potter and the love that we all have of J.K. Rowling. We're going to spoil that too. (laughs) Not that it needed more spoiling, but oh boy, oh boy. We will also have some adult themes. This week's adult themes are Revisionist History, Queer Baiting, Primary Sources, Foreign Exchange Students, and Best Sellers. So, Alex, what happened in this chapter? Before we get going, I just want to note that I'm wearing sunglasses right now as we record this because we're recording earlier in the day than usual and the light is coming through the bedroom window at like a really weird angle. So I look really cool right now. Yes, Alex looks extremely cool. 
as usual, but maybe even cooler. This, I got you those glasses for your birthday. Yeah, this is going to be a very rock and roll recap. Well, so, let's anyway, see if you can live up to that. What in happened? this week's chapters, Harry and Hermione read a book, and that's all that happens, basically. The end. Yeah. So, there you go. More specifically, Harry is sitting outside the tent on the watch, feeling... He's feeling really fucking pissed at Dumbledore for the absolute clusterfuck that he's left him in. So Harry is brooding. Hermione at some point comes out with a cup of tea because that's just what British people drink all the time. Um, They must be extremely caffeinated. I don't know. Tea's lower caffeine than coffee. That's true. I also don't drink very much caffeine. So you can drink so like eight cups of tea, right? And having like eight cup cups of, of tea would be like me doing like multiple eight balls. So, so. <laughs> it, would, it would entirely fuck me up. So Hermione brings out some tea, which is appropriate because Rita Skeeter is about to start spilling tea all over this book. Ha ha. Very good. <laughs> Uh, back to Harry's anger a little bit. He He's feeling very freaked out about his now busted-ass wand, which was broken, of course, during the scuffle with uh, Nagini, who had burst out of Mathilda Bagshot's corpse, you may recall. Very controversial, by the way, whether Bathilda was dead already or not. That was a bigger question than I expected. Even bigger than what shoes does Voldemort wear. <laughs> so Harry puts the broken pieces of his wand into the moke skin that he got from Hagrid, which is now, he thinks ruefully to himself, filled with broken and useless objects, most of them bequeathed to him by Dumbledore. So, I don't know. It's a good thing he doesn't like Marie Kondo, that shit, because I feel like a lot of the items in there are going to come in handy. It's, uh... It's the che- mirror, the snitch... I don't think anything happens with his wand, but I don't remember anything in oh, this book. Oh, something does. Okay, so yeah, I don't remember anything in this book. It's Chekhov's Mokeskin. <laughs> I also read it as Moleskin every time, and I just imagine <laughs> Harry as like a hipster in a coffee shop, like writing his great screenplay. I guess you don't write screenplays in notebooks. I don't know. I've never written a screenplay. You can buy a Mokeskin by the counter of your favorite independent bookstore. <laughs> So anyway, Harry's out there brooding. Hermione eventually comes out with Hermione eventually comes out with the aforementioned tea and a pristine copy of but 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 the motherfucking life and lies of Albus Dumbledore by Rita Skeeter, which she picked up in Bathilda's house and I guess managed to bring with her during the fucking snake corpse battle. So that is some fucking presence of mind. Hermione thinks that Harry will be interested, of course, because it's got the photo in it of the dude from Harry's visions. Harry starts leafing through the book, and he sees the photo of Dumbledore with the mysterious stranger who stole whatever it was Voldemort is looking for from... What's the name of the wand maker? Greg. The wand maker Greg Orovich. And the boy with the young Dumbledore in the picture turns out to be none other than, and this is a big one, so ba 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 motherfucking Gellert Grindelwald, who is described as his best friend, so what? Whoa! That is a fucking dung bombshell. Right there. Harry does some skimming and goes back to the beginning of a chapter titled The Greater Good. 
which starts just as Dumbledore is graduating from Hogwarts in a blaze of glory. He's won all these fucking awards, you know, he got his, like, senior pin, or whatever the wizard equivalent is. He's, like, writing for academic journals. What's a senior pin? You get, like, pins for being in, like, band for four years or whatever, right? I well, didn't. we got pins. It was a very big deal. Getting the band senior pin was big. Was it, you or get a was letter. it big for you? No, you get a varsity letter, and then you get a pin. I think. You lettered in band? Yeah, you can letter in band. Wow. I think I lettered in theater, too. You could letter in theater? Probably you couldn't for a long time. You could probably only letter in athletics, and then someone was like, we need to throw, like, a fucking bone to the... Nerds. Nerds, so they can wear their letterman jackets. I don't think I bought the jacket, though. I just had the patches, which are almost certainly in storage somewhere. Anyway, so Dumbledore lettered in Transfiguration or whatever, and got a pin because he was a very good student, and he was about to go on his grand world tour with his buddy Elpheus Dogbreath Doge. Was that a nickname Rita gave him or a nickname Dumbledore gave him? I don't know. I think it it's seems just like it Rita just, being mean. I, it seems like it was just like his high school nickname, like Worm, like Wormtail. It's kind of mean, but also, like, funny. I don't know. Anyway, when Dumbledore got the news that his mother had died. So Dumbledore... According to Rita, had to go, well, and multiple sources we know by now. So Dumbledore had to go back home to Godric's Hollow to take care of his younger brother and sister, Aberforth and Ariana. Rita says that Dumbledore was there to ensure Ariana's further captivity, because Ariana, Rita has speculated, was actually a squib, which the Dumbledore family was very embarrassed by. Recall that his mother... Rita said was keeping her captive. So while Dumbledore was at home, he met a new friend, Gelbert Grindelwald, who had been expelled from Durmstrang Academy in, I don't know, Eastern Europe, wherever the fuck that is, known even at the time for indulging the dark arts. But even so, despite its tolerance of the dark arts, Grindelwald was expelled for, quote, twisted experiments, unquote. What the fuck? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what he could have been doing, but it wasn't great. So Gel so Grindelwald, who of course goes on to become like a super dark wizard, second only to Voldemort. Uh He's like literal wizard Hitler, right? Yeah. Wasn't he sort he's of like He's like doing his shit around the forties, I think. Yeah, he was sort of he's meant to be kind of the stand-in for the rise of fascism in Europe and yeah. the wizarding world. So kind of, you know, sort of Germanic sounding Grindelwald like yeah. Dude. Anyway, so Grindelwald was invited to Godric's Hollow by his great aunt, none other than Bathilda Bagshot, who I guess was like, yeah, I should invite this kid to Godric's Hollow, who was expelled for twisted experiments. Seems like somebody I super want in my house, but I mean, you know, family. Bathilda, according to Rita, remembered Grindelwald as a charming young man. So that's always what you say, though, right? About... No, usually you say, like, he was really quiet. Oh, yeah. Kept to himself. <laughs> kept he to seems perfectly nice. <laughs> Honestly, Grindelwald, well, he seems, he's got more of, like, a serial killer vibe, like a cool sociopathic, like, hot guy deal. Yeah. Ugh. At this point in the book, Rita does some major editorializing outside the main narrative and basically says, prepare yourselves for a shock, Dumbledore lovers, because Grindelwald and Dumbledore not only became fast friends, they exchanged some incriminating correspondence. 
uh, basically Dumbledore and Grindelwald, they were just together all the time and like sending each other late night owls, one of which Rita publishes. It's a letter from Dumbledore to Grindelwald, basically endorsing the wizard supremacy worldview, saying, I agree with you, wizards have the right to rule, but we're going to be opposed in this, so our argument needs to be that we take over for the greater good. We're going to take over the Muggles for the Muggles' own good, and that should be the basis on which we build our movement, and that where we use power, we have to use it responsibly. So Dumbledore was a magic is might kind of guy back in the day. So that's fucking shocking. So at some point after this letter is exchanged, Ariana dies under, is it mysterious circumstances? Fairly yeah. mysterious circumstances, at which point, I mean, she dies, at which point the same day, Grindelwald flees the country. Dumbledore and Aberforth have a brawl. Oh, Aberforth blames Dumbledore for Ariana's death for reasons unknown. And there is a coffin-side brawl at her funeral during which Aberforth breaks Dumbledore's nose. Grindelwald and Dumbledore don't meet again until their famous duel. Rita speculates that maybe Dumbledore even held off going after him, despite the Wizarding World's pleas, because, like, he didn't want it to come out that they were once BFFs. And Rita then darkly speculates that Ariana may have been the first person to die for the greater good. So Hermione and... At this point, Hermione and Harry stop reading the book. It's the end of the chapter. They're both just dumbstruck. Hermione says that it's really fucked up because for the greater good later became Grindelwald's slogan, which he even wrote on the gate to Nurmengard, which was the prison where he kept his enemies and where he was later imprisoned after Dumbledore defeated him. But Hermione tells Harry that they shouldn't hold all this against Dumbledore too much because he was really young and his mom had just died. Harry interrupts and says, I thought you were going to say, oh yeah, they were young. We're young. We're fighting the dark arts. And at the same age we are now, Dumbledore was plotting to take over the muggles with Grindelwald. Hermione says it doesn't matter. Like he became later in his life an advocate for muggle rights and muggle-borns. She says, you're just mad, I think, because Dumbledore never told you this stuff himself. He loved you. Then Harry says, I don't know who he loved. This fucking shit show he's left me in, that wasn't love. So Harry sort of dismisses Hermione, says, go back inside, get warm, I'll finish the watch. And Harry is left alone, thinking to himself that he wishes what Hermione said, that Dumbledore had actually loved him. And that's what happens in this week's chapters. So, it's fitting that we talk about this. We said we'd talk about this. I don't want to spend very much time on it. We've had a little bit of time for it to melt slightly out of the glare of the zeitgeist in light of other much more horrible things happening in the world. But all your faves are monsters, so we should talk a little bit about J.K. Rowling coming out of her long Twitter hiatus with the express purpose of tweeting super turfy anti-trans garbage. If you weren't extremely online in, I guess, like the second to last week of December, that would have been. J.K. Rowling tweeted her support of 
Well, here, I'll read the exact tweet so we are operating with true clarity around what this is. So, yeah, on December 19th at 7.57 a.m. New York time, which, whatever, is like midday in where she lives, J.K. Rowling tweeted, Dress however you please, call yourself whatever you like, sleep with any consenting adult who will have you, live your best life in peace and security, but force women out of their jobs for stating that sex is real? Hashtag I stand with Maya. Hashtag this is not a drill. Um, ugh. So I stand with Maya was a reference to a British woman who worked for an NGO who was a contract worker. She wasn't a salaried full-time employee. She had a, um, she had a contract with them. I forget what NGO, like an international development thing. And she was, her contract was not renewed because she had tweeted a bunch of anti-trans things and refused to use correct pronouns for people. Um, Who she worked with or just in general? I think, I don't, rem- I, I honestly don't know if it was colleagues, but I think it was saying like if somebody in the workplace was a trans woman that she would use he, him pronouns for that person. Anyway, she was fired. She sued. She lost in court. The judge was basically like, this kind of treatment of people's identity like has no place in either the workplace or like a free society. And everybody who was a TERF, which means trans-exclusionary radical feminist, which is like a big offshoot movement of feminism, especially in the UK. It's like not as big in America. And I don't really know why that is. I don't know enough about the differences in sort of like the development of feminist politics in the two countries to understand why turfiness is so mainstream in British feminism. But it is. It's huge. So a bunch of turfs came out of the woodwork to hashtag stand with Maya. And sadly, but relatively unsurprisingly, J.K. Rowling was one of them and revealed herself to be what a lot of people have suspected that she was for a long time. Which yeah, was, based on some of her like kind of Twitter lurkings and likes. Yeah, pretty, uh, pretty deeply anti-trans. So that's kind of where we're at. And it is not only a garbage opinion in terms of being really hateful and bigoted, but it's also a garbage opinion just in terms of like facts I hate I hate anti-trans people being like it's just science because we used to say that about the size of different races skulls like (laughs) you can't call us racists because it's just accurate that there are biological and intellectual differences between the racists that science that was science that a bunch of racists made up so aka not science it was pseudoscientific bullshit and The idea that there are only two immutable biological sexes is pretty widely discredited. Sex, as we think about it, manifests itself in bodies in a lot of different physiological ways which can actually contradict each other, such as you can have different genitalia than you have chromosomes. And whatever. So just scientifically, it's bullshit. It's also just super bigoted. Yeah, this was just so, it was just depressing to, like, wake up and see, like, J.K. Rowling drop this bomb in the middle of a pretty 
LGBT fandom, a pretty queer fandom. Yes, that's the fucked up you thing. Know? Is so many people who are like the reason J.K. Rowling has her like station and power and like money and cultural position are LGBT, trans, queer, non-binary people. Yeah. And the fandom is very queer. Yeah, I mean, it's... And just for her to come out on this issue, I think, when, like, there's so much, like, happening in the world, and this is what she uses, like, not a drill for. Also, she didn't know? even fucking tweet about, like, Boris Johnson. Like, there are so many truly fucked up you know, things so, happening in the UK right now. So, like, this is the hill you're gonna die on? Like, trans people aren't... They're just out here trying to live you know they're not a very turfy kind of line is that trans women like male to female people are basically pervy men trying to infiltrate female only spaces in order to I don't know like blank that's the thing I it's like trying to do what like look up your skirts like do you really think somebody would undergo fucking like the extent that transition requires like physically and socially and financially just to like be a fox in the hen house like that's just it doesn't I mean as an argument that doesn't make any sense it is so it you expend so much fucking social and literal capital transitioning yeah it's so hard I I just yeah and just uh I I think and we tweeted this. It says a lot about the kind of communities you, like, stand up for and against sort of, like, says a lot about you. And, like, trans people are among our most marginalized communities. And, like, this is what you... If that's who you feel, like, deeply threatened by, like, uh, that that says something about you. I I, I don't know what exactly, Well, but... among other things about J.K. Rowling, it says you have enough wealth and power to be completely ignorant a, of just reality, and B, to feel very little external threat other than this completely invented, scary, trans woman boogeyman that doesn't exist. You know, and I, I just, like, your books are full of people change, literally changing genders, which we've discussed, and uh, for her to have such a, like, baked-in... Like, like gender essentialist, like, yeah, binary, it, it, it's just sort of like... You invented magic. Yeah. Not invented, (laughs) but like you write about magic. Transfiguration is like a subject in the school that you invented. Yeah. So uh, I think it's, my heart really goes out to trans readers who fall in love with these books and, you know, for whom these books form like a big part of their identity. Like my heart aches. It would fucking suck to have the creator of something you love come out and say, I I see your identity as, like, trumped up or less than or, like, a fucking sham or scam, you know? That yeah, not is just, deeply not fucking just, wounded. Not just not real, but, like, a way in which you are trying to be actively harmful to, right. I guess, cisgendered women. Well, she clearly sees it, based on her tweet, as, like, a kink. Because she's like, oh, sleep with whoever you want to, but... Yeah, that's the other thing. The you know, like it's not a, it's not being trans isn't about fucking. You know. Well, I mean, I mean, I don't know. It could be about any number of things. I'm obviously cisgendered, so well, well, not obviously. Actually, you know what? Yeah, I don't, I don't actually know. But that's not like I know enough to know that's not all there is to it, to identity. You know. Right. Sex is like having sex is part of identity, but it's not all 
your identity, you know? Yeah, I do think that the diminishment inherent in how she talks about trans identity, which is she very much kind of traffics in the line of like, oh, like men can wear dresses if they feel like it, but that doesn't make you a woman. Positioning it as a like deviant in any way which she's doing she's like be a deviant if you want to basically like it's couched in terms of whatever I accept you but she's clearly saying like I accept your deviance yeah which is fucked up in its own way but yeah equating it primarily with sexual appetites is also just really offensive and sad it just shows a real paucity of moral imagination which is depressing because we've actually given JK Rowling a lot of credit in the past for the kind of expansiveness of her moral imagination in some ways but this is a real this is a real bummer that's a very 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 silly way to put it but I find this really ironic because I mean just as a cis white man I don't know that many trans people who are out to me my main engagement with the trans community and the LGBT community, frankly, is through this podcast and through Harry Potter. Yeah, that's less true for me, but I definitely feel like I, we talk to, hear from, engage with a lot of trans, queer, and non-binary people because we make this podcast. The sheer diversity of this fandom just makes J.K. Rowling's positioning here really pathetic and limiting and alienating and just also very stupid. Yeah, so, and I just want to say that's been a really enriching part of my life and it's given me a lot to, like, think about and about just how I talk, how I think about gender. Just in general, I think one of the great learning experiences of this podcast is getting feedback from people about how our language, how our conversations, how our depictions, how the things that we call out are or aren't aligned with, you know, how people experience the world. We've been taught and informed and educated really deeply by the Harry Potter fandom about identity and diversity and inclusiveness. So having the progenitor of that fandom reveal herself to be in a really important way, deeply uninclusive is depressing and ironic and just, ugh, like, get it together. Also, she hasn't tweeted in months. Yeah. And this is where she was like, oh, I definitely have to get on Twitter. And, like, hashtag this is not a drill is so stupid. (laughs) So I think we can move on, but we did say we'd talk about it. And also, like I said at the top of the episode, it's kind of fitting because – we're about to cancel Dumbledore. Um, or Harry <laughs> is about to cancel Dumbledore. And I think the other thing is we just wanted to express solidarity with listeners who are affected by these tweets, uh, this tweet, and just say we see you and we glad we're glad you're on this journey with us. So, you know, there's a lot of shit that we love that has trash elements to it but we've tried to carve out like welcoming spaces within it i don't know like out of the united states of america <laughs> i love this country but also like also like there's a lot of like trash aspects of it and uh i love harry potter and there are some trash elements uh to it so fittingly as a wonderful one of the best writers of the internet age and a fantastic trans person and advocate 
Danny Lavery would say, life is a rich tapestry. Yeah. So before we jump into uh, the actual content (laughs) of this week's chapter, we've seen a lot of people dragging J.K. Rowling on Twitter by saying, oh, like, how could you do this? Aren't the Harry Potter books all about inclusion and acceptance? And that got us thinking, are they? I actually think that's kind of a facile reading of what these books are about, frankly. I think the idea that Harry Potter is primarily like an an inclusive and accepting text is, I don't know, like a little bit of a childish reading. I mean, whatever, they're books for children, so maybe reading them childishly (laughs) is the right way to read them, and maybe the way we're reading them is totally unreasonable. But um, wizarding isn't actually very inclusive. There are... Clearly, I mean, one of the things that we're going to talk about in this chapter is the really deep-seated wizarding view that even wizards who are sort of pro-positive muggle relations, there is a fundamental view in the wizarding world that wizards are inherently better than muggles. And there's some biological determinism in the, oh, yeah. in the divide between muggles and, I guess, what you would say, non, non-magic folk, humans, uh... <laughs> They're all humans, but Rowling draws pretty bright lines between the two. And non-magic folk, uh, muggles are depicted as... Well, actually, muggles are, like, among the worst characters in these books. They're Vernon and Dursley. The Dursleys. Uh, and, you know, even the Prime Minister is kind of foolish. I think I think those are the only real muggles we meet. We vaguely see Hermione's parents a couple of times, and they're not negatively depicted well they're like completely cut out of her life i know because her ascendancy to the wizarding world basically like negates all of her muggle experiences as far as the wizarding world is concerned i mean she writes a lot about inter-wizarding prejudice because you know there's obviously wizards are like torn about how much to like assert their specialness well they're torn about how accepting to be of wizards who aren't quote-unquote born to it. Yeah. But fundamentally, all wizards are born to it because you're born either magical or not. And there seems to be no fluidity in J.K. Rowling's conception of being or not being magical. Like, it is deeply biologically determined. There's squibs, but squibs are like... The most marginalized people in the magical community. As we learn about Ariana Dumbledore, although... I don't know if she actually turns out out to be a squib. The jury's out on whether she's actually a Uh, squib. But but Filch Filch is, like, totally consigned to, like, hard labor for his entire life and is, like, a punching bag for the entire student body. Well, and importantly, it is clear that it is impossible to stop being a squib. A squib is an immutable lifelong fact. Yeah. Like you can't, if you are a squib, you cannot learn magic. So no, she actually is really invested in incredibly stark categories of human beings that are fixed and impossible to move outside of. I mean, it works, narratively it works, but yeah, it comes with interesting implications. Honestly, it's like, I'm not necessarily saying any of this is bad. Like the world functions how the world functions. Like, J.K. Rowling wrote a world in which things function a certain way, and that's how sort of creators do their thing. Yeah. All I'm saying is the idea that, like, these are, like, 
deeply inclusive texts is a little suspect to me. Because J.K. Rowling's conception of inclusive seems to mean like don't actively be a dick to people, which to me is not actually what inclusivity means. Like being anti-racist, for example, doesn't mean like don't say racist shit. It means like work actively and constantly to like break down systems of oppression for like radical equity. And like J.K. Rowling thinks that it means like don't be a dick. And that's not enough. Like as far as I'm concerned, J.K. Rowling's idea of how not to be a bigot is very, very, very limited and there's a scarcity to it. So these books are sort of anti-bigotry insofar as like Dumbledore's message is like, hey, like don't oppress muggles. And like not being an active oppressor and being anti-oppression are different stakes to take. Dumbledore is a firm believer in separate but equal. Yeah, they're all separate but equal. Like, that's their whole deal. Like, that is actually the entire deal of the Wizarding World. That's the statute of secrecy. And, like, a thing (laughs) we have figured out in the United States is, like, separate but equal is, like, not really a thing. So whatever. Like, none of these metaphors work perfectly or even particularly well. And I don't think we need to, like, stay in this muck for very long because this is, like, really, like, complicated and maybe sort of stupid to even try to address. But when I did see all the tweets about, like, Harry Potter is about, like, loving everybody, I'm like, no, it's not. It's It's mostly about kind of about that. It's mostly about death and accepting mortality. Yes. She's really good at that. Yes. In my conception, Harry Potter is about dealing with grief and severe mental illness. And the fact that you will die and everyone you love. And if J.K. Rowling is good at writing about anything, it is grief and the fear of mortality. She's great at writing about those things. And she has a really, I will, I mean, whatever. We're like ragging on her because she acted atrociously. But she has a handle on lots of things. Not just sort of like world building and plot, but there are sort of like larger thematic elements of these books that she writes about with real clarity and beauty. But I don't actually think like anti-bigotry and anti-oppression are things that she writes about particularly skillfully. Because I don't think she's actually like an anti-oppression thinker, actually. She's not a social justice warrior. No. And I think she's proud of not being a social justice warrior. She's a, you know, a white liberal lady. And now insanely wealthy, which means a lot of people just tell you you're brilliant all the time. Also, yeah, there's just very few class traders. And J.K. Rowling, God bless her, she's just not going to be a class trader at this point. She's kind of rich more than she is anything else at this point. So we should all be mistrustful of that. (laughs) I guess that's where we leave it. Um, This might not any of it have been helpful. I don't think J.K. Rowling is in any way, like, the wizarding equivalent of, like, an anti-racist. No. No. Um, It's kind of weird, though, because Harry, he goes from being marginalized within living with the Dursleys, who, like, view his difference as an aberration and him as a freak, you know, so... To being part of an in-group. Yeah. So, I I don't know, he kind of... It's interesting how he crosses that boundary. Yeah, it is. I mean, we could spend, like, hours and hours talking about the experience of moving between 
oppressed and oppressor and like what that might do to a person but and all the ways in which like those two categories are super fluid and complicated and intersectional and blah 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 but suffice it to say I don't actually think it's particularly accurate to say like Harry Potter's central themes are really I mean there's like its central themes are kind of like good and evil but like good and evil isn't real and that's for children which is why jk rowling wrote books for children are you trying to say there's no good or evil there's only power honestly kind of whoa voldemort over here well hashtag and that's how we end the quiddler podcast hashtag voldemort was right (laughs) i don't think voldemort was right but i think there's nuance no i think the more power most people achieve the easier it becomes to them to feel like they are right and on the side of good even when that is not borne up by like ethics that is an excellent segue into the rest of this chapter's content although before we dive into anything way too heavy yeah let's let's take a break from being social justice warriors because that's how we get one star reviews <laughs> and talk about how fucking old Bethilda Bagshot must be. Yo. So we had to do some math on this because we get this revelation from Rita Skeeter that Bethilda is Gellert Grindelwald's fucking great aunt. And Grindelwald and Dumbledore, they're the same age, about. So Dumbledore was born in 1881, says Pottermore, or, you know, one of these fucking Harry Potter resources. Although, let's just back up to be, one of the reasons that I don't accept that as, like, airtight canon is because Pottermore also says that Minerva McGonagall was born in the 30s, but she's depicted as teaching at Hogwarts in Fantastic Beasts in the 20s. So, I guess just fuck continuity at all. (laughs) Anyway... But if we're to believe the internet, Albus Dumbledore was born in 1881. Yeah, and the book takes place in 97. Deathly Hallows takes place in 1997, which is when Dumbledore dies. So he's like 116 years old. So if Bagshot is... A great aunt. A great aunt. She's like conservatively 50 or 60 years older than Dumbledore, which means when Rita was interviewing her, she's like in her 160s or 170s. Right? Yeah. And we also know that Dumbledore's life was at least partially extended by Nicholas Flamel and the Sorcerer's Stone. So Dumbledore is old for a wizard when he dies. Like 116, like Dumbledore's fucking old. Do wizards just live longer? No, I think, I think it's another case where I don't think jk rowling did the math like nobody else seems to have grandparents except for neville That's neville has a grandparent thing. where are the weasley grandparents i think we could probably find that out on fucking harry's Baltimore. grandparents i guess were older when they had james and died of dragon pox uh, died of dragon pox when they were quite old but like even they weren't that old like nobody there's no grandparents in this fucking there's world Auntie muriel yeah i guess there's Auntie muriel who is god old save Auntie muriel Auntie muriel must be like 300 then well yeah because Auntie muriel knew Bethilda Bagshot. Auntie Muriel, by my understanding, is a contemporary of Bethilda Bagshot. So not 300, but quite old. No, but so Auntie Muriel is like pushing Wait, 200. Wait, doesn't she say how old she is? 
Remember, she's like, everybody move over. I'm... Oh, my God. Yeah. But wow. isn't, she, isn't she a contemporary of Bethilda Bagshot? Stand, stand by. So Aunt Muriel at the wedding is 107 years old. And she is the great aunt of the Weasley children. And her mother was friends with Bethilda Bagshot. Okay. So she's like Elpheus Doge's age. Or like... Well, why would, she's like 10 years younger than Dumbledore. That doesn't make any sense. I, somebody brought up on Twitter recently also that Snape is like 38 yeah, in these books. Because like, he's Lily's age. I They're just, school chums. But he seems, I mean, nobody's, maybe. He just has old man energy. Maybe we think he's older just because of Alan Rickman. No, but, also because he has old man energy. Yeah. And he's best friends with Dumbledore, who is a thousand. Snape's in his 30s, this whole book. That's wild. What the fuck? So people's ages in Harry Potter, I'm realizing as I do all, as I like sort of sort through all of this in my brain, make no sense. So, okay, Aunt Muriel's 107 and is the great aunt of the Weasley children. So theoretically, Bethilda Bagshot could have been like a hundred even when she was caring for Gellert Grindelwald who's about the same age as Ron Weasley in this book. So she might be more than 200 years old. Dude. How is she that old? Dude, I, I can't <laughs> tell. I cannot tell if they have artificially extended lifespans or if nobody did this fucking math. Yeah, it it doesn't make it. Because Dumbledore, yes, we do know that Dumbledore is very old, partially because he was imbibing of a nip the of, elixir of life. Yeah. And he was the oldest person by far in these books until we fucking figured out that Bethilda Bagshot is somehow improbably like 200. Also, somebody is going to write us a tweet or a DM or something and like look up what her actual date of birth is and. I'm going to look it up right now just to see what Pottermore says. But like, frankly, I don't care. <laughs> Let's see. So the only information I can find on Bethilda Bagshot's birth is that she was born before 1873. But it says she died at age 124. So take that back from 1997. Well, right. So that would be, oh, aged at least 124. But that wouldn't make sense. No, because... that's too young. To be, like, 1873, she'd be, like, a 12-year-old great-aunt of Gellert Grindelwald. No. When, is... when Grindelwald was born in probably around the same time Dumbledore was. That makes no sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Wow. You know, J.K. Rowling, age is a more concrete concept than uh, gender, but apparently she sees it as fluid. Yeah. Hilarious. <laughs> apparently age is, like just totally means nothing but <laughs> so moral of the story nobody knows how old any of these characters are including the creator of them characters <laughs> but Bethilda Bagshot conservatively 175 wow well okay conservatively let's say 165 if she's a 50 year old great aunt which she could be yeah but that would be young to be the great aunt of a 17 year old I mean there's if like people a, had kids young. It's like possible. There's like a guy alive today whose great grandfather was like President Tyler because like I, somebody had a kid have real kids really old young. with like a very young woman like back in the 19th century. So, okay. you know, there's like ways you could probably make the math work. But let's assume that a 17 year old is pretty unlikely to have a great 
aunt younger than 50. Right, yeah. I mean, my great aunt is quite old. Yeah, it is... Bethilda Bagshot is just unfathomably old when she dies. How did she get that old? Do wizards live a really, really, really long time? I'm Alpheus you, Doge is pretty fucking old, too, if he's a Dumbledore contemporary. She was doing Tai Chi. Yeah. That's how she did it. Mm-hmm. Hashtag, how old is Bethilda? <laughs> All right, moving on to the question of the episode. Is Dumbledore, quote-unquote, canceled? based on what we learn from Rita Skeeter's book. Profoundly shocking though Albus Dumbledore's fans will find it. Here are the thoughts of their 17-year-old hero as relayed to his new best friend. A copy of the original letter may be seen on page 463. Gellert, your point about wizard dominance being for the muggle's own good, this, I think, is the crucial point. Yes, we have been given power, and yes, that power gives us the right to rule but it also gives us responsibilities over the ruled. We must stress this point. It will be the foundation stone upon which we build. Where we are opposed, as we surely will be, this must be the basis of all our counter-arguments. We seize control for the greater good, and from this it follows that where we meet resistance, we must use only the force that is necessary and no more. This was your mistake at Durmstrang. But I do not complain, because if you had not been expelled, we would never have met. Albus. Dumbledore has been canceled for me since page one. I was gonna so. say we've been can we've done been canceling Albus Dumbledore for uh That's most of these eighty-eight episodes. Basically why we invented the Quibbler podcast. <laughs> it's just the long and arduous project of canceling Albus Dumbledore. So that might be the wrong question okay. to ask. Canceling's actually. kind of a canceling's kind of a it's like a kind of a dumb, overused, like, internet cliche. Yeah, clearly we're being flip about this. Yeah. But I think the more interesting question is, like, the broader exploration of do the things that you think as a really young person matter in the grand scheme of your contributions to the world and, like, how much? Mm-hmm. Because, you know... There's two, well, there's lots of sides of this, but I was a dumbass when I was 17. I'm still pretty dumb. I contradict my own thoughts fucking constantly. One of my favorite things to do is just really, really, really think something and then figure out how to think the opposite thing. (laughs) That's like an active hobby of mine. There are some things that I believe really fundamentally, but takes are for destroying in your own mind. Okay, the point being, I thought a bunch of just deeply inane shit about the world when I was 17. I think none of it was, like, fascistic in the way that Dumbledore is being here. But I thought that feminism was useless when I was 17. Mm. Uh, which is might be shocking to some listeners. But, you know, I didn't want to seem victimized. I wanted to, I was like, ugh, people reference this all the time. Honestly, it's like a pretty solid piece of writing about like being a woman. But I had the like gone girl, like cool girl mentality. And I thought it was deeply uncool to, I don't know, like believe in like female solidarity and like the need for equity. I don't think I thought about feminism at all when I was 17. Although I think if I had been exposed to it, 
I would have been much happier. You know, I just think I would have, it would have been like less mystifying getting like, I don't know, turned down or like dumped or whatever. I honestly think more exposure to feminism would actually make lots of teen boys much more resilient in the like dating marketplace. Yeah, I think so too. Um, you know? Rather, okay. <laughs> anyway, well, but that's, that's just that's an neither example. here nor there. But uh, yeah, no, I was that's a just an example of being a just a dumbass as a teen. Yeah. Um, what did I do when I was? When we all did stupid shit as teens. Uh, I was really into Boy Scout badges and the uniform. So that actually is sort of fashy. Really love to press that uniform and all my like medals. But I also liked dressing up, so... Yeah, I think that's more theatrical <laughs> of you. But I took those flag ceremonies very seriously. It was a very, you know, I was a bit more nationalistic, I think, as a kid. I think an interesting thing that Rowling does get here is, you know, everybody talks about how, oh, the kids are going to save us, you know, Greta Thunberg and youth activists and youth is seen as this force of progressivism or is portrayed as such in the media when... Actually, there's an opposite side of the coin in that youth can also be a very reactionary time. Uh, I'm thinking of, like, alt-right kids, uh, freaking PewDiePie or whoever, like, inserting, like, Nazi imagery and, like, say, uh, into his, like, YouTube videos for lulls, but also, like, maybe he's kind of serious. I don't know. Nobody really knows, you know? I think more than anything else, I think youth is just really maximalist. Right, yeah. You're just, because you're doing most things, I don't mean this to discredit the like very real and intense and important thoughts and feelings of young people, but a lot of being a young person is desperately seeking attention and recognition for your burgeoning selfhood. Right, and I'm special and I like have, you know, it's a time of grandiosity and grandiosity can be... Very reactionary, like Dumbledore and Grindelwald here being like, we're awesome, why shouldn't we fucking rule the world? Yeah, I think, so that's one side of it. It reflects your actual sort of like conceptions of right and wrong less than it reflects your emergent kind of like flexing. Mm -hmm. So in one way it's like, what does it matter what Dumbledore thought as a teen? But then Harry makes this beautiful point where he's like, we're teens, we know right from wrong, we're not saying dumb shit like this constantly. Like, what separates Dumbledore from us in terms of being able to gauge right and wrong as a young person? And, you know, I am one of those people that's in the, the youth will save us camp to some degree, because I also think that it is entirely possible for young people to have a really strong, unshakable, genuine sense of what's good and right and correct and how to fix things. Well, youth, yeah, youth is just by nature more forward-looking. Yeah. They don't always envision an, <laughs> a just future uh, in the case of Dumbledore and Grindelwald here. Or, uh, well, so I guess you know, the, the like question really becomes, like, to what extent do we hold somebody who, I mean, like, you know, we bitch about Dumbledore a lot. I have a lot of problems with Dumbledore's like personal treatment of Harry, but obviously Dumbledore is a major figure in like sort of resistance, like hashtag resistance wizarding politics. Like is that entirely negated by the fact that he was like 
briefly kind of a might makes right thinker as a teen. I don't know, honestly. I All I know is that if Twitter existed when I was a teenager, <laughs> I would not be able to make this podcast because I would have said ridiculous things. You know, I think... You do have to judge him by the totality, but Dumbledore in totality of his actions, the character. But Dumbledore also doesn't get off scot-free. And I don't think Rowling lets him off scot-free. No, 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 I don't either. And I think Harry's... What happens here that's most interesting is not, like, is Dumbledore good or bad? Is Dumbledore cancelled or uncancelled? Do we deplatform Albus Dumbledore? <laughs> What happens that's interesting is that his relationship with Harry is continuing to turn grayer and grayer in a way that makes our hero's journey more layered and complex and more important in a lot of ways because he's sorting out whether his hero set him on the right path. Mm -hmm. And that is a good and interesting question to explore in literature more than is Dumbledore, like, eternally... I mean, like, Rita Skeeter is saying a bunch of... Like, Rita Skeeter's take here is bad. Yes. Her, like, oh, if you thought Dumbledore was good, like, wait till you read this, like, super fucked up and offensive thing he wrote as a 17-year-old. Like, that's not an interesting... I mean, that's a very, like, first-day headline cancellation mm -hmm. take. Yeah. And it's always more complicated than that. And it doesn't, it doesn't undo his later work, but, you know, you... It's worth noting. But Harry is also, what the thing that Harry is uncovering that's important here is, and one thing I think we are seeing is Dumbledore was profoundly dishonest and revisionist about who he was at every phase of his life. Mm. And I think more important than what his sort of beliefs were or how they formed when he was a young person is his deeply narcissistic revisionism throughout his life. Another way to read this is Dumbledore didn't actually change his philosophy all that much. He just switched teams. He is still, everything he did to Harry, he would probably argue is, quote, for the greater good, unquote. Oof. Ooh, that's the take. You got there. That's the take. You know, he never really changed his ideas that people with the power have, like, the right to make the decisions. He just decided to change how he used that power. Like, he's not... He never set out to, like, blow up systems of oppression like we were talking about earlier. He just decided that he would be more benevolent. Well, maybe that's not true. No, that's actually... Because, he, you know, he, he voted for, like, laws protecting, like, muggles and, like, you know, muggle-born rights. But also, he came from, like, a very paternalist place. He's a paternalist. Yeah. And he's a paternalist when he's talking to... Grindelwald in this letter he's saying like look we just need to tell them it's for their own good we need to use our power with restraint which is actually like that never fucking works you know what I mean no uh, <laughs> no that's... well and I think I love it you got there that's the take yeah he's just he's constantly manipulating events and like doing whatever the hell he wants like outside of any constraints because he thinks he knows better than anyone else on the literal planet. Right. And, like, I, maybe he does not. Maybe he doesn't, though. Yeah, and there's no way to challenge that because he is so... He's such a fucking snake in the grass that you can't ever 
come right out in the open and be like, hey, Dumbledore, what are your ideas? What are your beliefs? What are your plans? Like, what do you want? What are you doing? No one has as much power as he does. So no one ever has the opportunity to like outwardly challenge him intellectually. Snape comes the closest and even Snape spends his entire life just like enacting Dumbledore's fucked up secret agenda and Snape believes in Dumbledore wholeheartedly but I think you're right he remains someone who believes that because he is by his own estimation the smartest and most powerful person in existence he gets to call the shots yeah and he gets to design the exact way in which the world is saved from like beyond the fucking grave and Harry is having this moment where he's like why are you in charge actually who died and made you king like why is it you that just gets to say this is how the problems of the wizarding world get solved yeah so I think Dumbledore changed but not a lot I don't think he changed as much as we are given to believe even though you know obviously if you put me down in the wizarding world my sympathies are with like the kind of I'm in coalition with Dumbledore. I don't know if I totally agree with him on everything, but, uh, you know. But Dumbledore just, I mean, and I think this is a thing that Rita Skeeter is pinpointing pretty effectively, is Dumbledore lived his life entirely outside of accountability. Dumbledore was never held accountable for the way he operated ever in his entire life. And everyone that tried to hold him accountable, he figured out how to, like, discredit. Like, fucking Aberforth. He just disappears into the hogshead. And briefly, Aberforth was like, dude, you're not the fucking boss of me. Yeah. And then he just fades into obscurity. Like, nobody holds Dumbledore accountable ever until, God bless him, Harry Potter. And a thing about Harry Potter is I actually don't think he is like Dumbledore in this way. Harry Potter sources ideas from others mm-hmm. and is actually a fairly inclusive leader. Yeah. And lets Hermione call the shots most of the time because he doesn't know what's going on and she does. <laughs> so I think Harry is correctly diagnosing, like, why didn't you tell me anything? Why did you think everyone around you was too stupid to know the entire truth? Right. So, yes, I think that's very smart. Rowling is also very interested in the dynamics and importance of young friendship. So, I mean, friendships really drive so much of these books. Obviously, there's the main trio, and now we have this new relationship between Dumbledore and Grindelwald. Grindelwald. I, I mean, we have two main trios, really, because we have the that's Marauders. That's true, yeah. Mm-hmm. The Marauders. Although, I guess they're a, they're a quartet. A quartet with a traitor. Yeah. A thing that I really do love about Harry Potter is that the primary relationships are always friendships. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't actually do what a lot, especially YA does, what a lot of books for young people do, or books for sort of like adolescent people do, which is assert the primacy of romantic love. She is very invested in the power of and the intensity of friendships in one's youth, which 
is very real and she depicts it in this very visceral way that I appreciate because those are in a lot of ways the most intense relationships we ever form in our lives. Mm-hmm. God, I remember the just the like neon glow of my friendships like with women as a, well, girls as like a teenager and the totally intoxicating toxicity sometimes of being really, 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 really close friends with someone and like all enmeshed and fucked up and none of it was romantic. It was just like, just like girl friendship. So one of the things that this obviously brings up is the retconning of Dumbledore's sexuality onto these books because according to latter-day J.K. Rowling, Grindelwald and Dumbledore were lovers at this time. Which, just what a fucking coward she is. It can now be revealed that Grindelwald chose to visit his great aunt in Godric's Hollow, and that there, intensely shocking though it will be for many to hear it, he struck up a close friendship with none other than Albus Dumbledore. He seemed a charming boy to me, babbles Batilda, whatever he became later. Naturally, I introduced him to poor Albus, who was missing the company of lads his own age. The boys took to each other at once. They certainly did. Batilda shows me a letter, kept by her, that Albus Dumbledore sent Gellert Grindelwald in the dead of night. Yes, even after they'd spent all day in discussion, both such brilliant young boys they got on like a cauldron on fire, I'd sometimes hear an owl tapping at Gellert's bedroom window, delivering a letter from Albus. An idea would have struck him, and he had to let Gellert know immediately. And what ideas they were. If they're fucking, make them fuck in the book. I mean, can they you do that? No, you don't have to depict actual Dumbledore and Grindelwald sex. Yeah. But this is classic queerbaiting of, like, offering, like, just enough context clues to make people feel like a glimmer of representation without offering the whole fucking cake of this is a same-sex love affair. There's obviously meant to be some overtones that there might be like something more than friendship here, but it's not enough. It's not real. She does a really pathetic job with this, honestly. Because in, in, in the books or with her comments in both, retrospect? Both. Both. Okay, yeah. If they're supposed to be in love with each other, just write that on the page. Well, now we have these new movies at a time when even since the 90s, on screen, same-sex pairings, way more common to see. And even then, we She don't, avoids yeah. it. They still don't do it. Mm-hmm. There's no love scenes. Well, or I mean, anything I guess close. They only had a couple months together. I, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, Have you ever <laughs> had a teenage love affair? Yeah, you're right. Never mind. A couple months is I take, an eternity. I, I take it back. I take it back. A couple months may as well be your entire life if you're in love as a 17-year-old. Yeah, no, you're right. I, I completely <laughs> That's I what Greece is about. <laughs> Summer Lovin' had me a blast. <laughs> I take it back. Yeah, um, I don't know if I can add much to that, except that, yeah, it seems like she wants the credit for making Dumbledore a gay character in retrospect without having to, like... Write a gay character yeah, at all. Mm-hmm, so just she wouldn't take the responsibility on. Also, 
even if we let her off the hook and say, okay, this Dumbledore Grindelwald portrayal is a useful portrayal of young men in love with each other, which even then I don't think it does that well. It's just really mean and small-minded to make it so that Dumbledore never has lasting love again in his entire life and has like passionate 17-year-old dude sex with a fascist mastermind and then is alone forever. Confirmed Bachelor, yeah, at like 116. Like, I don't know, maybe he and Nicholas Flamel, like, no, he has a wife, whatever. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Even, like, that's, to, okay, let's grant her the grace of Dumbledore appearing in the actual text of these books as a gay character. Then she's just trafficking, trafficking in other sad homophobic tropes about like the loneliness of like elderly gay life all of it's bad none of it works jk rowling we're coming out guns blazing for her i mean she isn't doing great and the thing that's interesting is this chapter is fantastic it's a great chapter honestly like i love this book i love this book but i am not happy with her so that's really really complicated and I don't have the expertise or the energy to get into like who owns creations once they leave their creator's hands and blah 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 but I'm at a really weird crossroads where I am thoroughly enjoying Deathly Hallows and extremely pissed at J.K. Rowling. Uh, So I don't know fuck that kind of but (laughs) (laughs) she did some of these things so well and we just have to deal with Life is a rich tapestry. Life is a rich tapestry. What else do we want to talk about? Uh, Harry Potter is a better person than Dumbledore. Oh, yeah. In yeah. every conceivable way. Because uh, you know, another, just to kind of add this on to the conversation we had earlier about young friendship, one of Harry's most important decisions in the books comes early on when he meets Draco Malfoy, who's bad news, and he makes a different decision than Dumbledore with Grindelwald. He chooses, as an 11-year-old... Not to associate with Draco Malfoy, who's bad news bears. But who is someone that Harry Potter immediately assesses can provide him with power and cover and built-in social status. Yeah. Harry looks at Draco Malfoy as an 11-year-old, understands what his life could be like with Draco as a friend and ally, and is like, I'm going to go my own way and hang out with this very dirty redheaded child who (laughs) seems... Nice. (laughs) And loves candy. And who will ultimately abandon me and I will forgive with open arms because I am good. I am just good, says (laughs) Harry Potter in his heart. (laughs) Harry can be a little extra, but yes, at many, many, many turns, he is presented with similar crossroads as the adult characters in these books and he makes better choices. Mm -hmm. He makes better choices than the Marauders. He makes better choices than Dumbledore and uh you know there's a reason it's his hero's journey yeah also just can we briefly return to a quibbler podcast refrain and say god bless Hermione who is really taking care of him in the best way she knows how and giving him a lot of space and tea and making him tea and you know I just I think she's being really gentle and a really good friend so I love her speaking of Harry 
the one final thing I want to say here is that his anger is so satisfying. He pulled the pieces of the broken wand out of his pocket and, without looking at them, tucked them away in Hagrid's pouch around his neck. The pouch was now too full of broken and useless objects to take any more. Harry's hand brushed the old snitch through the mokeskin, and for a moment he had to fight the temptation to pull it out and throw it away. Impenetrable, unhelpful, useless, like everything else Dumbledore had left behind. And his fury at Dumbledore broke over him now like lava, scorching him inside, wiping out every other feeling. Out of sheer desperation, they had talked themselves into believing that Godric's Hollow held answers, convinced themselves that they were supposed to go back, that it was all part of some secret path laid out for them by Dumbledore. But there was no map, no plan. Dumbledore had left them to grope in the darkness, to wrestle with unknown and undreamed-of terrors, alone and unaided. I have been waiting for six and a half books for Harry to at least briefly hate Albus Dumbledore, and it fills my heart with joy. That's wrong of me because it's really caustic and poisonous to Harry, and he's really struggling right now, and I think his emotional state is very upsetting, but God, I've just wanted Harry to have that moment where he was like, what the fuck even is this guy's deal? It's so great to have built Dumbledore up for six books and then to tear him down in this way. Although it's not even all the way torn down. And just then to sort of rebuild mm -hmm. him in a more interesting and complicated way. But making this, sometimes people complain about the this middle part of the book we're in, that it is sort of this dragging, long camping trip break in the action. But I think she uses it to accomplish some interesting narrative things, like some interesting, like, meta-Harry Potter commentary. It's really interesting to make the Dumbledore-Harry relationship the focus of this book. Well, it's also interesting to allow that relationship to fall apart posthumously. Mm -hmm. Because Harry is, once again, I mean as is the sort of, like, tragic lot in life of Harry Potter, Harry is, you know, battling with ghosts. Yeah. Like, Harry really never gets the opportunity to say what he needs to say to the grown-ups who shape him. A lot of his most important relationships are with dead people. Yeah. Which is why we said these books are mostly about death and grief. Yeah. And when you think about them as mostly about death and grief, they are honestly excellent. And J.K. Rowling knows her shit. So I'm very satisfied by this, like, wash of rage because it's been so long coming. You know, he was oh. pretty pissed at Dumbledore and Order of the Phoenix. But not in the same way. Yeah. Not in this, like, bone deep, like, I don't even understand why I'm here way. Yeah. When his voice cracks and he says, this isn't love. Ugh. I don't know who he loved. Ugh. It's so good. It's so sad. Also, it's, again, I'm going to keep harping on this. It's like all of Harry's ties breaking and setting him loose in the universe because he was anchored by the understanding that Dumbledore loved him and believed in him, and he has lost that too. Alex, who's your unsung hero? My unsung hero is Aberforth Dumbledore for punching out Albus Dumbledore. Punching him in the face. Maybe he didn't punch him out. He broke his fucking nose. And 
weirdly Dumbledore never repaired it, which is <laughs> maybe symbolic and interesting. Maybe it was ah, his sort of like indication of like having deserved it. Just a it. reminder. Yeah. Wow. I, never I think that actually that. is something that like comes up later, and we just don't oh, okay. remember these books well, at all. I was I don't think that came up with yeah. that out of my own brain. <laughs> my unsung hero is Elpheus Doge, who just gets abandoned for Gellert Grindelwald, and still remains a loyal friend to Dumbledore. Dude, Doge was on vacation. Though. No, but Dumbledore was gonna go with him, and instead he was like, "Peace out. I have to go." Like. Bury my mother. Oh, God, that's right. That's why he goes home. Still. Yeah, I know. He does, like, Doge does sort of get abandoned for Grindelwald and doesn't get, like, bitter about the Dumbledores at all and remains a loyal Dumbledore family stan for life. It's even funnier if you imagine him as the meme Doge. (laughs) Spelled the exact same way. He's just a Shiba Inu out in the world. Wow, so magic. Very wizard. (laughs) That's an old meme. Amazing. This week's episode is brought to you by Nurmengard. For the greater good. Oof. I don't want to have Nurmengard as an episode sponsor, but whatever. So we can reject them. We take what we can get we ta- at this podcast. We're taking all of the canuts from Nurmengard to make this podcast. It's the prison industrial complex. I have a question that that brought up for me. Are there different wizarding currencies in different countries almost certainly and they're probably like weirdly not convertible yeah we're gonna go to gringotts soon so i think we should have another wizarding economics episode in the future oh yeah that's gonna bring up we need to think about there's gonna be so many questions the audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of penguin random house audio they are from jim dale's performance of harry potter and the deathly hallows just a quick reminder the audiobooks of the harry potter series are gold and really worth a re-listen. So go get them, you know, on story tape if you want. I listen to them on They're tape. all out there. They're probably at your public library. That's how my sister used to listen to them. I listen to them on tape dozens and dozens and dozens of times. You know, reach out on social media if you would like Let to. Let us know what you think about this episode. Well, or don't, <laughs> honestly. This um, one might be controversial. Subscribe wherever it is you like to listen. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Stitcher and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's free all of those places. Obviously, it's a podcast. Um, actually, there's lots of podcasts that aren't free these days. It's so free as hell. Whatever. Should we get on Luminosity or whatever the fuck that thing is called? They is would, it even still around? I don't know. They would not welcome us. We no. are not <laughs> We are not hashtag influencers. Or celebrities, yeah. Um... Also, we did want to say, so we are obviously, as someone recently pointed out to me, American because they said that I had a shrill American accent. So thank you, sexism. Um, Apparently you don't have a shrill American accent. The point being, most of the things that we comment on in terms of current affairs tend to be American But we do want to say that we have a lot of listeners in Australia and we have heard from several of you over the last couple of weeks and obviously the wildfires happening in Australia are absolutely devastating and terrifying and we can't imagine what you all are going through and you are in our hearts and we hope you're safe and we hope your families are safe and we wanted to direct listeners who are interested 
to New South Wales Rural Fire Services, which we have been told is a good organization to send donations to if you would like to support local fire brigades who are doing the work of protecting people and animals and the land from these devastating fires. So do that if that is what's in your heart, and we hope it is. And just, you know, there's lots of shit going on everywhere all the time, and we we hold all of you in our hearts. We really do. We are shrill and obnoxious often, but we love you deeply. We really do, and we hope you're all well. And send some some love and some support in whatever way you would like to our friends down under who are going through some some really devastating ecological disaster right now so you're we're thinking about you all and on that horrible note everything is burning down literally and figuratively but next week we are reading a super fun and interesting chapter called the silver dough so we'll talk to you then thanks mates Now that he was beside her, he realized how tiny she was. Bowed down with age, she came barely level with his chest. She closed the door behind them, her knuckles blue and mottled against the peeling paint, then turned and peered into Harry's face. When 900 years old you reach, look as good you or not. Calling all wannabe wizards. If you fancy a new wand or invisibility cloak or maybe some brand new Quidditch gear, uh, there's no need to bore the Hogwarts Express, Australia's largest Harry Potter store, opens today in Melbourne. Now, fans will be able to recreate magical scenes as the props come to life. Ooh, adventurous shoppers can also take their taste buds on a journey with the Bertie Bops all-flavour beans with rotten egg and soap. For those game enough to try, I know a newsreader is supposed to be across the brief, but that I've got no idea what on earth that is.